Fit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, here for the programme that brings you an interesting guest every week as part of Faith Explored and brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm the senior editor of that title. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest edition of the mag, just go online and ask for one at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Well, my guest on The Profile today is Ken Fish. Ken heads up Kingdom Fire Ministries, and he says that miracles and healing are very much part of the church today. He witnesses them on a regular basis. He studied under John Wimber, who was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, and today uh, Ken travels the world in his healing ministry. And uh, I'm really delighted to be joined by Ken on the programme today to talk about some of the stories and the amazing ministry and what's involved, actually, in this kind of work. Ken, welcome along to The Profile. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's really great to have you on. Um, I came across you actually via another radio show, uh, which is the Eric Metaxas show <laughs> out in New York. Yeah. Um, he's a well-known personality, let's say, yeah. <laughs> in, in America. <laughs> <laughs> and and he obviously, you've obviously connected in the past with him at right. some level, because I managed to listen to a number of editions of his show online, where he brought you on to, to just tell some of the amazing stories of, of what happens. Um, so, but we need to go a bit further back to find out who Ken Fish is first. Were you raised in a Christian family, Ken? Um, I come from a mixed family, uh, one side of the family not believing, the other side yes. Uh, my, father di- my father died when I was four, and uh, my mother uh, seconded me to her parents for chunks of the year. Okay. And my grandparents were staunchly Wesleyan Methodist. And so I had a lot of uh, early Christian instruction Mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not really sure even exactly when I would have said I came to believe, but I I know that by the time I hit junior high school, if you'd asked me about basic Christian teaching, basic Mm. Christian doctrines, things like that, I would have said, yes, I believe that. So probably in that sense, I was already a believer. And it wasn't an event as much as just a growth into faith. Okay. Uh, but during my high school years, I stopped visiting my grandparents because I was a little older and mm-hmm. I didn't need to have adult supervision yeah. as much. And so um, I stayed home those years, in particularly the summer months. And it was at the end of my high school years, after uh, year 12, I had... I don't know if I truly had a conversion experience or it was a rededication or some sort of intensification of what... Mm. I already believed. I've never quite been able to put my finger on exactly what it was, but a clear dividing line was crossed in mm. the summer between year 12 and going off to university for my freshman year. So for whatever reason, faith became alive to you at that point. In a new way, level, for sure. In a new way. Yeah. You now work in very distinctly in the area of healing ministry and deliverance and, and all those sorts of things. Was that something that was there at all um, in your early Christian years, or was that something you very much grew into? No, it was not there uh, much at all. There, there were a couple of stories that floated around my mm. family of things that had happened, but it was always viewed sort of... Stri- you know, slightly strange yeah. or odd. Or <laughs> um, and then when I went to university, I, I got you know really very deeply into the practice of my faith. Mm. And uh, one of one aspect of that was I began reading the Bible voraciously. 
and I developed my own Bible reading plan that oh, took me And which university were you at just to be? Uh, I went to Princeton University. Okay, so this is New one Jersey. of the, the Ivy League, you know, yeah. top, top universities, the, the equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge here right, in the UK. Right, that'd be it. Yep. So you, you're evidently a, a very intelligent young man, but you arrived with this obviously um, burden for the Christian faith, which you were exploring while doing your academic studies. That's right. And, you know, as I was reading the scriptures, I just saw over and over again all these stories of both the healing and the miraculous. And I'll Mm. just clarify the difference. To me, the miraculous is everything that shouldn't happen normally, but it does for whatever reason, and usually isn't healing. Mm. Healing is something in the body, and it might happen normally, but it might be somehow accelerated and occur more rapidly. Or in some cases, things that wouldn't happen normally mm. do occur, and then those are miracles of healing. So if you think of a classic Venn diagram, you've got healing over here, yeah, you've yeah. got miracles here, and then you've got this overlapping area yeah, in the middle. Yeah. So there are healing miracles, mm. but not all miracles are healing, sure. and not all healing is miraculous. Sure. So um, anyway, I was seeing all of this stuff, whether it was miraculous or healing, and I looked at it and I said, how come we don't see this today? And I began mm. praying about it, and I was fasting, and you know, seeking the Lord. And, you know, this went on for a period of some time, probably about two years. But by my senior year, I was really passionately after this. Mm. And it was really in that context that a woman in my church walked up to me out of the, well, seemingly out of the Mm -hmm. blue. And she had a plastic bag full of cassette tapes, (laughs) you know, old technology. And she had gone to a John Wimber meeting in New York City And she'd bought all these cassette tapes, and she handed me the bag, and she said, here, I thought you might like to listen to these. And so in those days, I had a Sony Walkman. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I put the tapes in the Walkman, and I would walk around campus listening to John Wimber while I was going from class to class and then with what free time I had. And I just, I became, I don't know what to say, inflamed with desire for this. And, and I remember just, just for the context yeah. for those who might not be familiar with with the name John Wimber, though he has had enormous influence in the UK as well as the USA. But he was the founder of of the Vineyard Network That's of churches. Right. Um, Actually, to be clear, he wasn't the founder. The founder was a man named Ken Gullickson. Okay, and Ken grew it to six churches. And when John Wimber left the Calvary Chapel movement, Ken turned the leadership over to John. And so John is usually credited with being right. the founder, but okay. he's actually Strictly the guy speaking, who took it on. Yeah. And, and, and it went from yeah. there. But he's really a name which is ubiquitous when it comes to um, healing and, and the, the modern gifts, the, the charismatic gifts of the spirit right. and that sort of thing. And, and I think brought it in a way that perhaps was dif- distinct from what you might have called Pentecostalism, you know, of the early 20th century and that sort of thing. Very much. It, it, he very much, I think, brought it into a much wider sort of acknowledgement among many different church streams. I think right. I think we saw that with, with John Wimber's ministry, which, and it wasn't razzmatazz or in, in a sense, you know, we have to do this on a, on a big platform with, you know, the right music behind us and that kind of thing. It was often very simple and, 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 and he was encouraging normal people to take part in this. And, and you were exactly. one of those people who came under that sort of teaching. Yeah, that's right. So during those years that I was in university, I, I I had a very profound spiritual experience. Open vision is what most people who understand Mm -hmm. that language would call it. Uh, And I I knew that God wanted me to go to seminary. And and to be honest, it wasn't really something I wanted to do. I had other plans for my life. Mm. And uh, 
were it not for the profundity of that experience, I probably would have never gone to seminary. I would have dismissed the experience and just said, nah, you know, popcorn one night or mm. something. But anyway, I was going to go to seminary, and now I've got these John Wimber tapes that I've been listening to, and I've just, I said, God, if this is real, if this is going on, I mean, I have to be there. Now, I grew up not far from John's home church, uh, the vineyard, although in those days it was called a Calvary Chapel. Mm. And I'd had friends in high school who had taken me there a few times. And they always said, now, this is an unusual church. Things <laughs> happen there that are not quite what you would expect to see. But I'd kind of forgotten, and I just didn't really connect the dots. And when I reconnected with all of this, I realized, oh, this is that church. Mm. So anyway, I went to Fuller Seminary, and while I was at Fuller, I had to apply for an internship because that was part of what you did when right. you got your Master of Divinity. And so I applied at the Vineyard thinking, I'll try there first, and if that doesn't work, I'll go see if I can get an internship at another church. And lo and behold, I got a phone call saying, yeah, we're going to give you an internship, but you're not going to be a youth pastor. You know, you're not <laughs> going to work in the men's ministry alongside of Mike Maynard was the guy leading it at that time. Um, they said, you're going to go to work for John Wimber. And I was like, I'm going to do what? I said, you're going to go to work for John Wimber. And so I joined John at Vineyard Ministries International, and I was his intern for as long as I needed to be an intern. And then he hired me as part-time staff, and then when I graduated, I was full-time staff. And I ended up working for John. I was with him all up for 13 years. I worked for him for 11. John has himself a fascinating backstory of having initially had a career in the music industry. That's right. Um, what was the famous song that he was actually involved in? Uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. And you know, the funny thing is about John, he was actually recruited by the Beatles to be their general manager. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, in, in the end, he turned it down because by now he was himself a Christian and he was called to the ministry and he said, I can't go back into that world because I'm supposed to serve Jesus. But I sometimes wonder what would have become of the world <laughs> if John Wimber had become the Beatles general manager. Wow. What an interesting alternative history that would be. Yeah. Nonetheless, you, you were there. You were obviously under his tutelage. I mean, what, what were the sort of lessons you learned from John Wimber in the years that, that you were there with him? Oh, there's so many things I learned from John. Um, you know, before I say that, I just want to mm. mention, while I was at Princeton, I had a, another man named Ken uh, Jasko, who was a, kind of an early discipler for me. And he taught me the basic disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and fellowship and communion and all mm. that. I mean, I owe so much to Ken Jasko for that foundation right. layer. But when I got to John Wimber, John began to teach me things that, well, if Ken knew them, he hadn't taught mm. them to me. So, um, But one of the things I learned from John is we wait on the Holy Spirit and we do what he shows us to do. And a lot of Christianity I'd been exposed to up to that point, it was very much in the head and it was very motivated by, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Whereas with John, he would say, the Lord spoke to me and told me to do this. And I saw that language in the Bible, but I didn't know anybody who talked like that. But the thing that was crazy about John was he'd say, the Lord spoke to me, and what he said the Lord had spoken, it would come to pass. Mm. Or he would know things, or you know whatever. But it was, it was, it was clearly confirmed. And so I, out of that, I learned, I would say, uh, to seek the face of God with a radical dependence on the Holy Spirit. And, and even to this day, the meetings I lead and so forth, I'm always looking for what is the Spirit of God leading us to do right here, right now, in this meeting. Because if you miss that, it may seem like a good idea at the time, but the kind of miraculous or supernatural or whatever you want to call it, 
it, it will usually be at a much lower level, if at all. And I think that's probably true of many Christians. We we can all be they're, they're, being a Christian in a sense it is simply about putting our trust in, in Christ, and in that sense, uh, we, we all share that in common if we call exactly. ourselves Christians. But to move in the the miraculous, to move in the spirit, it's it's about something a little bit more than that, I suppose. It's about kind of being open enough to saying, I'm going to take a step of faith here and, and try and listen for what you're doing in this moment, God. Not the general principles of Christianity, they're great, but but what's God saying in this specific moment? And that must have taken some time, if you like, to to get into, to, to yes. kind of know what to do, how to do that, how to listen for the Spirit. Yeah, for the first for the first little while, I was just, I felt like I was completely out of my depth mm. and often felt very clueless because John would say, oh, this is going on, that's going on, that's going on. I'd be going, what, huh? I don't know. What is he talking about? <laughs> and after a while, I became more comfortable with that, and eventually I started to do it myself and well, now, you know, it's been many yeah. years and I'm... What sort of things were you seeing then that kind of opened your eyes suddenly to, to what is possible when the, the Spirit starts moving in a room? Um, well, one of the things that would happen is the Holy Spirit, we would say the Holy Spirit would fall. So the, there would be kind of a, an invasion of the presence of God in a more tangible way. And oftentimes people would start to cry or shake or fall down or whatever. Um, there could be many different manifestations. I only named a couple, but... You know, at one point we put lists together, and I think we had like 45 different manifestations that can be indicative of the spirit moving in the room. But I remember uh, one time, this was in the days when we were meeting in the gymnasium at uh, Canyon High School in Anaheim Hills, California. Um, one night we were all gathered, and the bleachers were all pulled out because we were meeting in the basketball court. Mm. And so the, the place was pretty well filled. I don't know what we had, maybe three or 4,000 people there. And um, there was a woman sitting close by me, uh, and I was sitting with a bunch of friends. I was in my early 20s. But there was a woman sitting close by me, and everybody knew who this woman was because she was one of the most beautiful women in the church. <laughs> she was married. Uh, but, but what was interesting was I knew, her, I knew her story, and even though she was astonishingly beautiful, she was afraid of getting married because she always assumed no one would want to marry her because she was born without ovaries. Wow. And so I remember that night distinctly because John said, now the Spirit of God is here and he's about to move in great power. And all of a sudden I looked over at Nancy was her name, and I looked over at her and she just broke out into sweat. Hmm. I mean, her clothes were soaked all the way through right. and she began to vibrate intensely like this. And several of us laid our hands on her. Hmm. Her husband was standing there and the power of God came all over her body. And, you know, she just wigged out, I think, is the only... <laughs> do you use that term in the UK? <laughs> I, know what, I know what you mean by yeah. that. Yeah, so she just... Right. This incredible wave of energy right. came over her body. Well, today she's a grandmother, and her four children are grown and so forth. So she literally, at the end of that prayer time, she said, I feel fatter inside. Right. And, of course, she went to the doctor and got mm. some confirmation, and she had had ovaries created in her body that didn't exist. Now, that's a miracle. That's a full-on miracle. Yeah. And she went on and had these four children, and they've gone on and had children of their own. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, we saw going on in those days. Now, out in the USA, there are many types of Christians, and I've certainly met Christians who actually don't believe that God acts in those kinds of ways today. People who might term themselves cessationists, who say, it happened in the early church and for Jesus, but 
once the canon of scripture was closed, we no longer see that sort of thing. And people who are very concerned as well about certain parts of the church that move in this area where they believe there's manipulation or it's tied to some kind of a prosperity gospel message. Where, how, were you aware of those sorts of other views about healing and, and so on that were out in, there in the church? And, and what was your response at the time that you began to move in that? Um, well, yes, I was aware of those views. Uh, I, there were other groups at Princeton mm. that you know, taught that these things were no, not for today. By the time I was at Fuller, there were people there who you know, clearly were kind of in that mm. frame of mind. I just didn't really view it that way. I just looked at the scripture and I said, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, actually the exact scripture is Jesus Christ mm. is the same yesterday, mm. today, and forever, Hebrews thirteen eight. I, I looked at that and I said, well, then why would he have stopped doing these things just because the apostles died mm. or the alternate form of it just because there is a canon of scripture? And so... I understood that people held that point of view, but I thought that can't possibly be the right point of view mm. because there is this continuing testimony through the ages of the church. You can read it in the writings of the church fathers. You know, men like Ignatius of Antioch, uh, men like Polycarp, mm. uh, Eusebius, Augustine, the you know, great mm. church father. These these men all wrote at different times and in different ways about miraculous or healing or prophetic or whatever manifestations of the Spirit of God mm. that they themselves had seen. And so you come to the place where if you are going to dismiss the entire testimony of mm. all of those church mm. fathers and say, no, they're wrong and I'm right, to me it's an indefensible intellectual position. Okay. And so you have to soften on, on that yeah. point of view. The, the other aspect of the criticism that I've seen, I'd just be interested in your take on it, is, is those who are concerned about what sometimes they term charismania. You know, yeah. anything goes in the charismatic yeah. church. You can hear God telling you this, that and the other. Uh, and I think just people are worried about, you know, it, it's kind of how far can you go in this direction? And that's why I think maybe some people, I'm sure you're aware of him, people like John MacArthur in the US yeah. wrote a book called Strange Fire, yeah. where he was very critical of certain aspects of the... Um, the charismatic church in the US and the way it's tied very often as well to a sort of prosperity gospel. So how do you respond to those kinds of concerns that some Christians have about this whole area? Well, there's no doubt that, shall we just say, broadly defined and globally, not just within the Christian faith, uh, money raising can become a a pox Mm. upon the practice of faith. And certainly within some branches of the church that's gone on. But but let's be clear here. We could paint the Pentecostals with this problem, but we could also paint the Catholic Church. This is the day after the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. <laughs> yeah, We could paint the Catholic Church with that in the Middle Ages, with mm-hmm. all the selling of indulgences mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So we know that this can be a problem. But but I actually don't, don't see the two as needing to be conjoined. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in my meetings, I have many times actually not taken any offerings at all and there have been times i've forgotten to take them when the pastor said you know be sure to announce that we're going to pass the offering baskets we don't we don't do this for money we do Mm. this because jesus healed the sick and he told us that we should go live as he lived Mm. so um yes we need money to live on but i never i never tie any of it to you know if you give you will get healed and i never tell people that uh you know if they do thus and so god will make them rich 
And it, so it sounds to me like you're acknowledging that there are areas of the church where that there can be it can be problematic. Oh yeah, there's there's, there's areas excesses. of abuse in, in many areas of the church. Uh, but as far but what you obviously you know saw in John Wimber's ministry and what you've continued in your own ministry, <clears throat> you try to make as as have as little of those connotations that too often people have in their mind of you know oh they're just in it for the money they're just in it for the fame or to manipulate people. It's as far as you can. It's about God uh, at the center of it all. That's right. Um, you know, when we pray for people, we never charge for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times I'll do, you know, individual appointments with people that are maybe a little more complex and that take more time. I've never once ever, ever charged mm. to do one of those sessions, sure. ever, not yeah. once. No. And I've had many advisors and friends and, you know, other leaders say, well, your time's worth something. You ought to at least put a price on that. Mm-hmm. And I go, Jesus said freely you've received, freely give. Now, if people want to give to the of ministry yeah. in the aftermath, yeah. We'll always accept those gifts, but I never ask. Right. And in the total total history of you know doing this for years now, I I think maybe five or six have actually offered to give as a result of having received prayer. It's not many. We've um, at the time of recording just had a, an interesting discussion on my other radio show, Unbelievable, with a skeptic talking about healing ministry. But um, What's interesting sitting down with someone like you, Ken, is is there are certainly lots of people who are skeptical, both within and outside the Christian church, of, of healing. But you've seen with your own eyes things that you simply can't deny That's are right. the activity of God. I know there's so many to choose from, but give us an example of, of where you saw something miraculous, not just a sort of progress, you know, a, a healing that was advanced, you know, a bit more, but where something just happened that just you said. There's no other explanation for this. Right. Well, I told you one already. Mm. That was of this woman with her ovaries. And just to be clear, you know, in that one, what was interesting there is that we were in this gymnasium. John Wimber didn't pray for her. He gave this Mm. word, God's Mm. about to move in power and people will be healed. And then boom. But it was like eight or nine of us that were friends that laid hands on her. So we couldn't even say which of us was the, you know, cause of this. (laughs) It was God moving through the body of Christ. Uh, but, you know, last year we were in um, El Salvador, and I had a team with me, and we were we did a street meeting. It was an evangelistic outreach, and I got up and did a very short message, and some people would doubt that that's possible, but it was <laughs> short. And then, you know, we, we had a bunch of um, packages that were provided by Samaritan's Purse, uh, Franklin Graham's ministry, mm-hmm. and we were giving those away, and then we offered to pray for people, and a number of people came forward. And there was a man who came forward, uh, first, first names, Jose Luna. And um, he had skin cancer that had gotten so advanced, he came up and he had this huge bandage on the right side of his face. And I wasn't even really paying attention to him because I was praying for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But a couple of my mm-hmm. team members got on to Jose Luna and started to pray for him. And when they, uh, when they did, they asked him to take the gauze off of his face. And... I'm not exaggerating here, just, just to be clear. This part of his left nostril was still there, but his nose was gone. Wow. And his eyeball was gone. And he had a hole right here where you would have your cheek that when they called me over to pray for him, um, you could have, I could have put my fist into his head. Wow. And I could look in his head, and it was all dark in there, but you could see right into the center of where his brainstem was. And they had this gauze there to keep dust out. And clearly this is, you know, he's going to get healed or he's going to die. I mean, those are the only two outcomes. 
and he had three active cancers on the surface of his face. They looked, they were about so big and they were um, kind of black and cauliflowery. So one here kind of over the bridge of the nose, one above the eyebrow, and one kind of way over here on the mm -hmm. temple. But here's this giant hole. So the three of us laid hands on him, and I wish I'd taken a before picture. I didn't, and I actually consciously didn't because mm -hmm. I had my phone on. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, this is, this is too gruesome, and I don't <laughs> want this to seem gratuitous. Okay. So I literally chose not to take mm -hmm. the picture. Now mm -hmm. I wish I had, but yeah. anyway. So we prayed. And I, you know, we commanded the face to grow and the cancer to die and all the things that you'd expect to pray. And, uh, you know, we took our hands off and, well, it looked about the same. So we bandaged him all up and sent him home. And I thought, well, he's going to die soon. I mean, mm. it was pretty mm. obvious. Mm. About a week later, I was back in Los Angeles where I live. And uh, I wake up in the morning and here's a text message on my phone. And it's from the brother of the attending physician of Jose Luna. Okay, right. And that brother is my lead translator in Latin America. So he says, Ken, you have to know, Jose Luna's face is growing back. And I said, what? I said, get me pictures, right? <laughs> so his brother took, sent some pictures up. And what happened was the face had grown together, and there was a huge divot just about here on the chin uh, where this part was growing into this part. Mm. And so they, you know, his face was regrowing. And I thought, this is, in, this is incredible. Now, I was down there again this year, and I saw him, and I looked at his face. And the, the case is made more complicated, as sometimes is when you're trying to document these mm -hmm. things. Now that the face was regrowing, his doctor had taken him to a plastic surgeon, and they'd done some reconstructive surgery. I see. So now you can't fully tell mm. how much was the face regrowing yeah. and how much is the fix. Yeah. But the... At the time they did the reconstructive surgery, the divot had largely vanished. There was mm. still a little bit of a crease, but yeah. it largely gone. The eyeball, though, has not regrown, or at least not to mm. date. But there's like a, I don't know what to call it, an eye bud or a proto-eyeball right. or something. Yeah. There's some kind of a fleshy yeah. something there, and it may grow into an eye right. at some point. I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, the nose had partly regrown, but it was, well, it was very thin. It, right. it didn't have yeah. the dimensionality yeah. of a normal mm. nose. But the rest of his face looked pretty darn good. Wow. And so he still wears a gauze over his eye mm. because it's, it's not a full mm. eye and it looks kind of weird. But he's alive well. All of his cancer scans have proven to be negative now. And he's 73 years old and he's kind of going about normal life and wow. he's back to work. Mm. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen anything like that yeah. myself. Yeah. But anyway, um, we were trying to get you know all the medical reports sent up and... Mm. It's been a little bit challenging to get the hospital to release yeah. it, but I think in the end we will have them, and if I get them, I'll forward them to you. Fascinating story. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to hearing more in the second part of today's show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from my guest on the profile today, Ken Fish. He heads up Kingdom Farm Ministries. Find out more about it at kingdomfarmministries.org. And we're going to continue to chat about what it means to move in the miraculous healing stories and some of the um, questions that often come out of these sorts of issues as well. I'm Justin Briley, your host for The Profile today, uh, here as part of our offering every Saturday on Faith Explored. And don't forget, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Check it out at premierchristianity.com. We'll be back in a couple of minutes' time. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue... Jesus died so you could be rich. Is the prosperity gospel a false gospel? 
Is TV's reality hit Love Island forbidden fruit or a wake-up call for Christians? And what happened when one woman set off to cycle the world and encountered God? Discover answers to these questions, plus opinions, news and much more in the August issue of Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's profile. I'm Justin Briley. Don't forget you can find the profile online at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. It's a podcast as well. Lots of people download it from week to week. This is the program where we have an interesting person join me in studio or indeed one of the other presenters on Premier Christian Radio uh, to talk about their life and ministry. Ken Fish is my guest today. In the second part of today's program, we're going to be talking about his work uh, with his ministry, Kingdom Fire Ministries, the sorts of things he sees happen in uh, the miracle healing meetings that he holds. Um, what some of the questions are that arise from that as well. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here to to talk about this, Ken. Um, I mean, going back to sort of when you started, as it were, to act in your own strength in, in your ministry, um, you, you're very much keen, I think, to, 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 to let people know that you're not some superhuman special individual that God has given this one-time special gift to. You actually believe God can use all kinds of people in that's this area. Right. And that's very much, as I understand it, part of your ministry is trying to teach others to move. We do a lot of training that. events, yeah. In what sense can you teach others to move in the gifts of the Spirit and, and in healing and so on? What does that actually look like in practice? Well, you know, when Jesus called his first disciples, he, he made them a value proposition. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So I think what happened was those who followed him they they were drawn into a lifestyle. They were drawn into a relationship. They were drawn into a series of encounters. And so initially what they did was they just watched. They watched Jesus do what Jesus did. Eventually he drew them in and, and had them minister alongside of him. And and it you know it says in various places in the gospel, afterward they would come to him privately. And so he would give them further instruction. Maybe he would correct them. You know, when you did that, this wasn't so mm, great. Mm. When you run into this kind of a problem, pray this way. In fact, you, you do get glimpses of that in the Gospels where, where they, he's, they said, oh, we prayed for this man. And, and Jesus says, this one only comes out through fasting. That's right. So, so it's almost like it's a very practical almost teaching that Jesus was giving. It's very hands-on. It's, it's, a, it's an apprentice kind of model. And remember, mm. Jesus apprenticed as a carpenter. So how do you learn carpentry? Yeah. You watch somebody yeah. do it, and then yeah. you try it yeah. for a while. And okay, so so that's stage two is kind of you're working together and then dialoguing about it. Stage three is maybe you start to lead it a little bit, um, but you still come back and check in. I'm hitting this problem. I don't know quite how to solve this mm-hmm. one. Most of it went well, but there's this. And then at stage four, you're left doing it, and that's really at the end where Jesus commissions them and sends them out. So I. I view training events in these areas of the supernatural as first thing we want to do is get people in an environment where they're experiencing it Mm. and they're seeing it and Mm. they're encountering it. That'll raise all kinds of questions. And that's actually good because Mm. when people are in that environment, now they're in a learning posture. And the questions they're asking are very much motivated by 
how do I get further down the curve as opposed to just a bunch of theoretical yeah. stuff that's based on, I don't know, something that their other mother's, uncle's, brother's, aunt, <laughs> you know, might have said somewhere. So we try to draw people into that. Um, in our training events, uh, I give a lot of biblical instruction. I show the biblical basis, whether it's for healing, deliverance, prophetic ministry, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, we're very deeply rooted in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, because I really believe that both Jesus' ministry as well as especially that of Paul are deeply rooted in the Old Testament Jewish tradition, the, the, the tradition of the Spirit, mm. uh, and the promise that he would be poured out on all flesh one day through the prophet Joel. And therefore, this is something that we live in the age of the Spirit now, mm. post the resurrection. So we get people involved in doing it and trying it out. And of course, oftentimes it'll be kind of baby steps at first. Mm. But as people begin to see uh, victory, success in that, uh, they, they, their faith will rise and they are somehow prompted to try things that previously they never would have tried. I, I think the, and I'm speaking of myself here in many ways, I think the thing that often holds people back is what if it doesn't work? I'll have egg on my face or that person will be terribly disappointed or I'll build someone's hopes up. You know, there's all these questions that run through people's minds who may in principle believe that God can heal, but they're really worried about actually taking the step and praying for someone for physical healing because what if it doesn't work, basically? I mean, what's the response to that? Well, there's two responses. The first one is um, the highest commandment isn't to heal, it's to love. Okay. And if you stop and take the time with somebody in whatever condition they are, and you invest some of your time in them, unless you are really poor at your social skills, <laughs> there's almost no sense in which they will not feel love. Okay. So I think that's, that's kind of the first thing. We just get that out of the way. Um, the other part of it, though, is as we, as we are, are teaching people to move in the things of the supernatural, there's a natural progression of faith. And you know, you, 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 there's this phrase that you hear it more in Pentecostal circles, but from victory unto victory, from glory unto glory. Mm. I think as we see God be faithful, as we see God be God, as we see him be true to his word, there's something in us that rises up and says, Ebenezer, hitherto God has been faithful. And the clear implication, why therefore wouldn't he also be faithful in this time? Mm. So if you'd put a Jose Luna in front of me, mm. 20 years ago, would I have had the confidence to pray for him? I don't know. Seemingly, nothing happened when we prayed for him. But I prayed with confidence and Mm. faith because I said, Mm. I know my God. Mm. I know how much Mm. he loves people. I know how much he cares about their misery and suffering. And therefore, I believe God will be faithful in this moment. And he was, but not in that exact moment. But in that encounter, something happened. Talk to me as well about the, the other element of what you do. Because... Very often, before a healing can take place, or sometimes it's another issue that, that's, that's sort of manifesting, um, th- there's a need for issues to be dealt with sometimes. Right. You often encounter people I know, especially in parts of the world where witchcraft or types of occultism might be m- m- quite commonplace, where there's, there's spiritual forces at work as well. What typically might you encounter? What are some of the th- things you've seen where there had to be some sort of a, a deliverance take place before um, whatever issue could, could be dealt with. Well, I'm, I'm working on a book, although of late the progress has slowed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm working on a book called An Integrated Guide to Healing and Deliverance. Mm. 
Because the thing that's interesting is if you look in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 10, which is paralleled in Luke 9, and then again in, in Luke 10, which is not a parallel, but it's a subsequent uh, mm. sending out, in Matthew 10 and Luke 9, um, Jesus gave them not only authority to heal, but also to drive out demons. Mm. And so there is some linkage there. And oftentimes it may be more tightly linked than people even recognize. In Matthew, uh, excuse me, in Luke 10, Jesus sent out the 72 with the same commission, mm. heal the sick and drive out demons. So it's clear from these three passages of Scripture, Matthew 10, Luke 9, and Luke 10, that there is some kind of linkage there. But in our, in our Western world, we really struggle with the idea of evil spirits. We, we do. I, I was going to say, yeah. to some extent, that's harder for some people than the, the idea of miracle healing is oh, yeah. the idea that there's a demonic realm and that we're somehow supposed to be engaged with it as Christians and, and standing against it because it feels like, you know, that's the stuff you get in The Exorcist and movies like that. It doesn't, it feels Hollywood or, or, or whatever it might be. Well, and we've been, we've been sort of taught in our schools and the media and the movies and all of this that, you know, people who believe in that are sort of off their rocker and mm. they're crazy. Um, and there's this widespread belief that the devil isn't real or... It's a metaphor of some kind, sure. So the first time you encounter the demonic, it it can be a little bit off-putting. And um, yet, I will say this, I've seen now hundreds of times when evil spirits will manifest and people see that, and it's like like a 15-second arc. The first five seconds, they're kind of like... What's going on? (laughs) Yeah. And then the second five seconds, so from seconds six through ten... It's like the wheels are turning and the penny starts to drop. Mm -hmm. And then the last five seconds, they realize, wait a minute, if this is real, then it must be that everything else in the Bible is credible too. It's all real. And so in a funny kind of a way, the driving out of demons solidifies a lot of people's faith. That's interesting. And leads them Mm. into a deeper commitment to the things of God. And Mm. I remember I did a meeting in New York City um, at NYU. Right. Uh, New York University, downtown. Uh, this would be nearly two years ago now. And, um, you know, it was sponsored by an organization. And Eric Metaxas was in that mm-hmm. meeting. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't recognize him as Eric Metaxas. I knew his name. <laughs> I knew you know, what he did and so forth. Yeah. But I didn't, didn't have a Facebook yeah. with a name. And I kept looking at the guy, and I kept wanting to call him the professor, the professor, the professor. <laughs> And he's very kind of professorial. Yeah, he, yeah. he went to Yale, which yeah, isn't yeah. as good as Princeton, but it'll do. Um, but he was sitting back there, and all of a sudden there was a guy next to him, and I pointed at him, and I said, the Lord's on you, and he's setting you free right now. And this guy went into a full demonic manifestation. Wow. And he just fell on the ground and started going off. Mm. And I just walked back there and drove the demons out. And this was all closer than you and I are to mm. each other mm. between me and Eric. <laughs> yeah. And Eric's watching all this, and he'd always believed in it, but he'd never seen it. Yeah. And the next morning, he went on his radio show, and he said, I'm here to tell you this is real. <laughs> I saw it with my own eyes last night. And, you know, and that kind of started him on a whole trajectory. Yeah. So it's, it's funny, but we actually, I believe, need to see the kingdom of heaven invading and conquering the kingdom of darkness yeah. in real and tangible ways, with people getting real breakthroughs. As people see that, they start to understand God has actually come to the rescue. Mm. He, he cares enough. I, I, I mean, very often what people will think is, well, what 
the professionals, I think, will say what's happening when someone's who are not Christian, secular, they'll say what's happening there is some kind of psychological issue is yep. manifesting. It's it's a mental illness. It's something else than a spiritual. Now, I guess it's at one level we have to be open to the idea that people do have psychological issues, and, oh, of course, and, and not everything is demonic possession. That's right. But where do you? How do you steer that line? And and how would you say to someone who really thinks, oh, all of these things is just sort of something psychological going? What what would you say to them? No, there's more to it than just the psychology. Well, it's funny you ask that because just in the last year there have been a couple of pretty high profile articles that have come out in the United States. Mm. Um, major medical centers, doctors trained at places like Columbia. One of them was a guy actually went to Princeton mm. undergrad. Mm. Um, but they have been talking uh, in, I think the New York Times ran one of these stories, about these doctors who are seeing, maybe not every day, but they're seeing things and they're saying, this is demonic. There's no denying that. And so these are certified, trained clinicians who mm. are you know, mm. speaking into this. Those articles are searchable online. People mm. would know how to go mm. run that down. Um, so not everybody is willing to just dismiss this as some sort yeah. of psychological break. But the other thing I would say is oftentimes when we're dealing with the demonic and these evil spirits leave, there is a notable and nearly instantaneous change in whether it's people's mental frame of mind whether it's something physical in their body, but things very rapidly reach resolution. And is there often a linkage to something that they might have been involved in in the past? Oftentimes, yes. If they've had occult in their own history, maybe in their family, uh, they've dabbled in other religions, cultic forms of Christianity, um, these kinds of things can all be open doorways. There are other things as well, but those are some of the more common ones we see. I remember hearing you talk about a an instance where I think you were ministering in, in Africa, um, I think that country escapes me, but where you were essentially confronted with local witch doctors. Oh, that was in Uganda, yeah. Okay, tell us about that story, because that was just, <laughs> that was just for me, that blew my mind when you told this story. Well, it was the last day of a large conference that's held over there every year by a African denomination. Okay. Nobody here in the West would know it, but um, anyway, it's a... The, the leader of that denomination is Western educated. You know, he's a doctor, mm. not medical doctor, but PhD type doctor. Um, so he's actually a fairly, you know, like we are. Mm. But of course, he's ministering in Africa, and Africa is undergoing its own changes in terms of worldview and economy mm. and politics and so forth as modernity continues to encroach. But there are still those who practice the old ways and the shamanistic religions. We tend to call that animism, but um, I think shamanism is a better term anthropologically and, and sociologically. So anyway, we were at the last day of this event. We were in this rotunda that seated around 2,500, maybe 3,000 people. I can't remember how the chairs mm. were configured, mm. but something like that. And um, there was a large open area in front of the stage, probably, I'd say comfortably about 10 meters between mm. the stage and the first row of chairs. And uh, there were these aisles that led through these chairs, again, set up kind of like a theater in the round. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, four groups of witch doctors, four deep, so 16 total, came down the aisles, and they were dressed in regalia, and they're shaking shrunken heads, and they're, you know, rattling bones, and they're doing all this stuff. And as they crossed into that kind of open 10-meter zone, uh, all of a sudden the power of God just hit them. 
and they were all knocked to the floor by the power of God wow. as they crossed into that zone. And um, 14 of them were instantaneously delivered of spirits. It was kind of loud and wild. and wow. okay. right. Right. Yeah. Um, But there were two that were the leaders of the pack that were a little slower to get fully freed and delivered. But in the end, all 16 of them were freed of their evil spirits. And because of the, dr- dr- the dramatic nature of that power encounter, the kingdom of God encountering the kingdom of darkness in this direct clash in open battle, mm. as, as that happened, um, all 16 of those witch doctors gave their lives to Christ because they realized we have encountered a power greater than the power which we, we, which we mm. carry or wield. Mm. And so you know, they, were, they were soundly converted as a result of that. Amazing story. It, yeah. it leads me on to, I suppose, asking. Um, we, we, very, we don't hear a great deal necessarily in the West, in the church, of, of healing and deliverance and, and so on. Yet you minister in other parts of the world, and it's very often from those other parts of the world which we, where we appear to hear so much story of that happening. I, I think I once read a statistic that, that most, uh, you know, that over half of the conversions that happen in China involve some kind of a miraculous uh, incident. Um, what what's going on there? Why why do other parts of the world, if you like, the more developing parts of the world, seem to move in these areas more than we do in the West, uh, in the Western Church? Well, I think the, I think the the thing we have to put our finger on more than anything. There are several things we could point to, but we have limited time, mm. and it's not a dissertation. Here. <laughs> um, I think the single thing we have to put our finger on in the West is the Enlightenment. Okay, because. As a result of the Enlightenment, essentially the entire worldview of the Western of Western civilization. Now, this would include most of Europe, mm-hmm. the United States and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and maybe even to some extent parts of, say, Japan and mm-hmm. places like that, industrialized nations. Yeah. Um, we 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 came under a point of view that said uh, the supernatural doesn't really exist. There is no supernatural. Mm. Now, anthropologically, anthropologists call this the excluded middle. The biblical worldview is that there's the realm of the earth, that's the one that we live on and carry out our affairs, and then there's the realm of the heavens. And many Christians still kind of hold on to that two-dimensional... That that dualistic view of things, yeah. And I would say even those that are cessationists and you know don't believe in the supernatural, Mm. largely, yeah, God's up there somewhere and maybe he has some angels with him Mm. and that sort of thing. But this middle zone, and anthropologists have a term for it, they call it the excluded middle. Mm. The excluded middle is really where uh, in many of these other societies they still understand that there is a zone in which the realms of the heavens traffic with the realm of the earth, and on some level those on the earth can reach up to the realms Mm. of the heavens. Mm. And so it's in this second zone that things really occur, and they they don't trip over that in many of these societies the way we do. Mm. And as a result, um, we tend to exclude all of that, and we either don't see it at all or we refuse to acknowledge it if we do because Mm. it doesn't fit our worldview. And it's a well-known fact psychologically. I mean, there's been plenty of studies done on this, that if people experience something they're not expecting, they encounter cognitive dissonance. And in cognitive dissonance, they exclude it. Yeah. it. The very term dissonance tells you it's dissonant with what they're mm. cognitively expecting. And so as a result, many people kind of move beyond all that, and they don't really, they just don't know what to do, and they, they drop it. 
So in a sense, when you what I could see you encouraging churches in the West to do, who do want to start moving in this area, is to to kind of change their worldview. Absolutely. And, and in a sense, it's to say, because your ministry is all about heaven and earth colliding, essentially. Right. It's the kingdom of God breaking in That's right. uh, to, to our present reality. It's not something distantly in the future or distantly exactly. in the past with Jesus. It's right now. And and I, I find that fascinating because I think that that that's really interesting because it can be messy as well. It's not simple. It's not sort of like everyone who gets prayed for gets healed. There's a kind of, there's almost a battle going on. That's right. I, I, that's the way I hear, often hear it talked about in, in the kind of circles you move in, Ken. So so what does that look like in practice? I mean, the, the frequent thing I hear, and the thing that occurs to me when I hear of amazing healing stories is, what about the people who didn't get healed? Yeah. People who maybe, you know, really were prayed for and, and so on. I've got, you know, I don't know if you, you're aware of this this story, but uh, a wonderful Christian apologist who was a convert from Islam, Nabil Oh, Qureshi. Nabil. Nabil. I was there yeah. a couple days before he passed, right. and I went and prayed for him on um, uh, eight separate occasions. Okay. So I know Nabil as well. He yeah. was on my Unbelievable show several times over the years before he, he got cancer. And of course, Nabil's story is, is in one sense amazing. He had this extraordinary conversion from Islam to Christianity, very much an intellectual journey as well as a journey of the heart. But then cut down almost in his prime by mm-hmm. cancer and thousands of people probably around the world praying for him regularly and him obviously having direct intercessions for him from people like yourself. But he still died. And a lot of people, I think, are left scratching their heads saying, if, if God was going to heal anyone, surely it was, was Nabil. Where, where do you go with that? What do you do with that? Well, I'll just say this, be, even before I answer the, you know, the, just the intellectual mm-hmm. side of it. Nabil's loss was a huge loss for me. I'd grown very close to him and to Michelle and to Aya, their daughter. Um, I'd met his family. Uh, when I would go visit him, his family, they're still Muslims. Yeah. Uh, they were incredibly thankful that I would come and do this. And uh, I remember I was actually in Australia the morning that he died. And I I woke up and I had a message that he'd gone. And I knew when I left, either he was going to be healed or he was going to go soon. Mm. And, you know, I'd been in prayer for him. And so I remember I had to preach that morning. It was a Sunday morning and I had a service mm. to lead. And I was I was really out of sorts. I just mm. I felt like my thoughts weren't flowing and I was mm. just, wah, 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 plum, mm. you know, mm. one of those. But... Anyway, and um, you know, I shed quite a few tears over his passing. So it was I a shed very some tears personal... too. Yeah, I, I didn't know him as well as you knew him, but but it, he was a huge loss to the church yeah. in general. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that was funny was when I first started going to see him and pray for him. He said to me, "You know, Ken, if, if the Lord brings me out of this, he said, I'm going to travel the world with you and learn to do what you do." So, in a lot of ways. You know, he was he was a, a bit younger than I was. Mm. I, it almost felt like I was losing a spiritual son. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so what happened there? Well, he died. Mm. And here's what we know. Mm. Unless your name begins with E and you happen to be Enoch or Elijah, <laughs> everybody's going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Mm. Phil's going to die. Mm. Our cameraman. <laughs> um, everybody's going to die sometime. And the question is, what are we going to die of and when? Mm. And nobody really knows the answer to that. So there will be some that are going to die sick 
and you know, even the prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor in the Bible, it says he died of the disease of which he would die. Well, we don't know what that was, mm -hmm. but he died of a disease. Whereas Moses, when he went up on Mount Nebo, he died, but he died hale and healthy. Mm. So there's this, you know, some yeah, yeah. seem to just mm. languish and be there. And this is part of the mystery of healing. We don't, we don't have all the answers. Um, what I can tell you is, in praying for people, we often discover that there are things in their lives. And this is part of why I'm writing this book mm -hmm. on an integrated guide to healing and deliverance. I think there are seven different dimensions of things that go on in people's human system, we'll call mm. it that, mm. and they interact. Mm. And a lot of times when we're solving the healing problem, what we're really doing is trying to figure out what are the issues that are blocking the power of God from flowing right into the center of what this is so the breakthrough they need can happen. Because I do believe God is a healing God. He mm. named himself mm. healer. Mm. He gave himself that name. No one else did. Mm. I am the Lord who heals you, Jehovah Rapha, mm. or Yahweh Rapha, if you say it in Hebrew. And, you know, even with Nabil, I saw him the Friday before he died, and then I flew to Australia. And when I walked out of his hospital room, I, I was kind of high-fiving, you know, yeah. God, yeah. because I thought, Lord, we solved it, because there were three things that came up in that prayer encounter that mm. had never come up before. Mm. And when I put my hands on him, there was like a bolt of 440 electricity that went mm. through his body. Mm. And he was on the bed just, he said, what is that? I've never felt anything like that before. Oh, my God, what is that? And I said, that's mm. the power of God. And I thought, he's going to be healed. But I will never say that. I'll never claim it. No. Because the only way to know, with especially late stage cancer, it's obvious. Mm. If they're healed, they're going to get well. Yeah. And if they're not, they're going to die. Yeah. Nabil died, and I was wrong. Yeah. There you go. But we did uncover three things, and so I look at that, and I think, you know, Lord, somehow we didn't go deep enough. We missed something. There was something there. I don't know what it was. I don't know to this day. I've thought about it a mm. lot that needed yet to happen in order for that healing to occur. I, I don't know. And that's part of the mystery of healing. And, and in that, we just say we trust the Lord even when things are dark. And that was the case with Nabil. He repeatedly although he was seeking for mm. physical healing he always said throughout that whole journey and he kept a video diary of it that whether he was healed or not he trusted jesus that's right and i guess that's something we can all take away from that's from right story it's been an amazing um interview ken uh, i didn't quite realize where we were going to go with it towards the end of it here but um just for those who are sort of left wondering well i'd be interested in doing something i've heard stories but i've never seen it or i've never certainly practiced it myself where can someone start <clears throat> someone who isn't ken fish and is already traveling the world doing doing healing ministry you know i have a website kingdomfireministries.org we have a store um i have many 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 dozens of teachings and and also training events whole training events not all of them are video, but many of them are available in video. All of them are available in audio. Amazing. They're downloadable. For free? Um, they're, they have a low price. Okay. But Great. we do have some that are free, and then the yeah. others are paid, Great. but but they're low in price. Um, and people who want to learn about healing can get basic healing and then mm -hmm. intermediate healing and start on that journey. They want to learn about deliverance. We have basic and advanced deliverance and then some advanced topics, select topics in deliverance. Um, we have teaching on inner healing. We have teaching on prophetic ministry. Um, it's all available there. They can just go to the website, um, you know, sign on and go shopping, decide what they want to start studying. 
You heard it there, kingdomfireministries.org for more on uh, what Ken is doing. And uh, obviously, he may be picturing up somewhere near you as well. And there's a schedule of, of places. From here, I'm going there. to Scotland tonight. Well, there you go. Well, bless you, Ken. Thank you for coming. It's been really good to, to have this uh, conversation with you and, and all the very best in your future ministry. Thank you. Bless you. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Uh, Don't forget, you can listen back to today's show, available as a podcast, uh, whatever software you listen to your podcast, it's available there. Or go to our website, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. And don't forget, while you're at it, to visit the Premier Christianity magazine website. Ask for a free sample copy of the latest magazine. We're planning to feature Ken in a future edition of the mag. premierchristianity.com slash free sample.